0: Uh, Exodus chapter twenty. I'm going to be beginning back in verse eighteen. Before we read, I want to um, bring bring us up to uh, 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 where we're at here, and um, it's it's interesting as we've gone through uh, the first seventeen verses, which which are the the Ten Commandments, right? Because I've had conversations with a lot of you, and I'm sure you guys have a lot of conversations with yourselves in regards to some of the things that we. We have read about and studied about and looked at and, 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 and what God's revealed to us through His Holy Spirit, not only as a congregation, but individually. But I, I, I bring that forth because we've all had a certain reaction to it. And what we read about here is the children of Israel also have a reaction to their experience, to their encounter. And for the last two weeks, as we've been studying through these first 17 verses, we know that God has been speaking His commands to Moses and um, in the presence, in the, in the hearing of the children of Israel, and they all had gathered together there at the uh, foot of Mount Sinai. And, and when God, we're told, had descended upon the mountain on Mount Sinai, He spoke in the presence of His people, and He gave them these ten commands, which are recorded in the first 17 verses of this chapter. And we spoke about how this was not the entirety of the law, nor was it the, the entirety of the, 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 the um, conditions, if you will, ...that were set forth in this covenantal agreement that God was making with His people. It was simply a foundation. It was a foundation for the, the covenant agreement that He was calling them to enter into... ...or that He was, as God, entering into with them. But as we read on, we're told what the Hebrew people had witnessed on that day... ...had caused them to be afraid. That was their reaction. That was their response. And, 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 um, and because they were terrified by the sights and by the sounds, we're, we're told that they retreated from the mountain and retreated from the presence of God. And, and um, it, that is one of the, the key indicators here, but we have to, to take into consideration that it just wasn't the things that they saw, the thunderings and the lightnings and the darkness coming upon the cloud and the fire on a mountain and in the fire, all the things. But we have to consider that was the things that they heard as well. And, and and I point that out because all too often when people are confronted with the law of God, people who are in rebellion to God or in resistance to God, and not that the Hebrew people were at this point, but, but when people are in that spot, they either react in one or two ways. They either say, woe is me, for I am undone, like, the, like Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and, and, and call out to the Lord to purify them, to heal them. When they understand that, that, that in addition to the law, there's the grace of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, the restoration of God, the salvation of God. As the law is, is a schoolmaster revealing our need for a Savior, as we've talked about over and over again, or people respond in one another the way. They're terrified. There was a, one man that came to church here. Um, you guys don't know him. I'm going to tell a story. But he was, he was, uh, I knew him uh, through, through another friend. And I was, I was uh, more of an acquaintance with him. But he got in trouble with the law. And, and he, he knew about Jesus, God, the Bible. But he got in trouble by, with the law. And um, he was facing some serious jail time. And uh, for some of the things that he did. And, and, and so he, he, he did what a lot of people do when they get in trouble. They're like, oh, God help, right? And maybe you've done that. I know I've done that in my, in my own life and still do that at times, you know. Now, even as a believer and, and as a follower of Christ. But, but what he began to do is he began to read the Bible. And he started at the very beginning. And he got to the book of Leviticus, and when he got to the book of leviticus he was terrified terrified because of he god had convicted him of who he was and what he had done and the life that he had been living and the things just the man who he was in comparison to the standard that god had set forth here in his law he was terrified because he saw how unworthy he was. He saw the judgment that he deserved, the, the punishment that he deserved. And, and, and he came to church. And, and he, me and this other guy got a chance to talk to him and visit with him. And on one Sunday morning, he raised his hand and received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Awesome, awesome story. Uh, but a lot of people are getting to that place where they're terrified and, 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 and their heart becomes hardened and they withdraw from the presence of God and, 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 and receive these things in a negative way. And as we've responded to these things, we, we need to focus on the fact that the law and through Jesus Christ, that it's not an issue of condemnation, it's an issue of restoration. And God desires for us to have the morality that's contained within the law still today even though we've been set free from the law as Christ become the fulfillment of the law that there's still moral compass a moral issue there that God wishes to guide not only uh, our, our church congregation by but only but also our, our personal lives. And as we transition to this next section of scripture, we're going to see some specificness to it. But the people uh, uh, the Hebrew people they were they were terrified. Nevertheless, they Clearly desired a relationship with God. They weren't retreating from God's presence and wanting and fearfulness and running away from them. They still desired to have a relationship with God. But and so they settled for something less than what God desired for them. They settled for a mediator. And they requested Moses to be a mediator between them and God, and even though Moses agreed, he, he tried to assure them that they really had nothing to fear and explained that God was well, God was only testing them in all of this, and we're going to read about that. And, and the idea behind this is something that I think that's lost in modern-day Christianity, because we are Christians who are saved by grace, but I think because of the grace of God, we lose we, we, we tend to step across the line where we lose a, 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 um, a holy and 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 good reverence for god uh that 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 we don't have a healthy fear of god in a way that that we should in the way that god was calling his people to then in these accounts that we're reading about to do so and moses was really reminding them that a healthy fear of god would be something that would keep them from breaking god's commands now god's love for us and our love for god is the first motivation and just like, just like I want that to be in my own home with my own kids, right? I want them to obey me because I love them. And I set forth commands in the life and in their home because of, of a love for them. Um, um, and, 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 and yet, there's times when they don't obey, right? Times when they um, do what they want to do and, and not what dad has said. And, and, and so there's another aspect in this dynamic of our relationship, and it's a healthy fear. Now, I want my kids cowering at me, and they, they've done that because I've not been always a perfect father where I've, I've yelled or screamed or threatened or reacted in anger and discipline in a way that wasn't godly. But the Bible tells us that even as believers that we should have this healthy fear of God because the Bible talks about the discipline that comes from God as something that is painful. It's not pleasant even though we know that it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And so there's this awesome tension that goes on in our lives. There needs to be between the love of God guiding us and leading us and directing us and motivating us, and on the other side of it, this, this, this healthy fear of God and, and, and this not wanting to go to this place where we're, we're, we're needing the discipline, the painful fruit that yields righteousness in our life. And so we see this going on here. And so according to verse 21... It says that Moses turned um, um, from the people and he walked back up to the mountain. You can look there into the thick cloud after having this conversation with the people which the the cloud which covered the mountain and into the presence of God. And when God continued to speak, he gave them these guidelines, these precepts that that connected us back, connected them back, Moses and the people back to these ten commands recorded in the first 17 verses commands or, or, or precepts that would guide his people into the right path. And these are what we're going to read about in the next several chapters. I'm not going to read through all of them. I'm going to take them kind of by sections, like I said. I'm going to highlight some verses, but I'm going to take it all as one kind of bite for us this morning. And and, and so we're going to be moving through these in a pretty rapid pace. But let's, let's at least read through verses 18 through 26, look at the people's response, and then we'll continue on into chapter 21 and through chapter 23 this morning. In verse 18, guys, it says in verse 18, chapter... Chapter 20 says, Now all the people, okay, after hearing the voice of God, this is, what, this is what they're focused on. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us and we will hear but let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Then, verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with Me. Gods of silver or gold or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for Me. And you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record My name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of unstone, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Now shall you go up, by, nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. And Father, as we see the reaction of the Hebrew people, your children, Lord, in this sense where they pulled back, I pray God that wouldn't be true in our own hearts, in our own lives. God, when we're convicted of our own sin, of our own shortcomings, of our own failings, Lord, may we not retreat. May we not hide. May we not run. But Lord, may we see that you're a God that desires to have a relationship with us. And Lord, that these things that you reveal to us and that you convict us of through your Holy Spirit and by your Word are things, God, that that you desire to to, to take out of our lives so, that, so that, that we may be purified and made holy, so that we may have unobstructed, more unobstructed fellowship with You. So, Lord, that we may not suffer the consequences of our sins, that they would not, they would not be um, seeds that would bring forth fruits of unrighteousness. Lord, that You're only desiring good for us, that there's no condemnation. And God, that if we're in that moment in that time where we see our sin revealed, Lord, through the Word and through Your Holy Spirit, God, that we would simply confess and draw near to You and offer up our lives as a, as a sacrifice to You, as it says in the book of Romans, which is just a reasonable a thing to do, And Lord. And it would be also um, from our mouths through praise and worship. And Lord, because we know that our sins have been forgiven. We love You and we praise You. In Jesus' name, amen. I didn't. I didn't want to just kind of glance right over the last part of this section and get into these guidelines in chapters 21 through 23, um, because there's very important things being told to us here that really connect for us um, in, in, a, in a substantial way the things that we're going to read. And, and as we close out this chapter and look into these last verses that record the specific commands here in verses 20 through 20, 22 through 26, specific commands for the altars on which the people were to worship, the context of this passage should help us understand a couple of these key things. Um... And the first is that these altars of sacrifice demonstrate how God's desire for his people were more than a a desire to simply govern their nation or their personal lives. Remember, God was calling them to enter into this covenantal agreement with them, saying, hey, I'm going to make you a mighty people, a a nation who has their own land. I'm taking you in. All these things. I just want you to to be my people, and I'll be your God. And, 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 And you hear my voice and obey my voice, and these things will come to pass. Well, we talked about how the law was a means for God. God to then govern them as a nation, he being the king, right? And he was setting these things forth. But the law, but but, but what we see is is, is that God desired more than that. God just didn't want to be a king, a dictator, a ruler, the Lord. He is all those things. But he desired more from this covenantal relationship with his people. And, and, and it's even safe to say that those things that we just mentioned were secondary to what God's real desire was, just like it is for us in our own lives. Does God desire to be the Lord of our life? Absolutely, 100%. But that's, that's almost a secondary thing compared to God's greatest desire, and how do I know that? Because I look at the work of Jesus Christ and, and, and the motive for why Jesus did what He did and it reveals to us the, the awesome desire of God for us. And in regards to the, the Hebrew people, which is the same for us, as we, as we see that God desired simply sim- more than to simply govern the nation and their personal lives, we see this because, because with these altars, contextually, God, who also desired to have a relationship with His people, who were were too afraid to now approach him, right? God who desired to have a relationship with his people who were now at this point too afraid to approach him, he was now establishing a way for them to still be able to approach him and worship, to approach him and have fellowship, to approach him and have relationship. That's what God desired in this covenant relationship with his people. Not just so that he would be the king and I got this nation of people, special chosen people, and now they're going to do what I say, live as I say, and, all, and when they don't then the, then, and they get out of line, then I'm going to punish them. God desired to have intimate fellowship with them. And even when they drew back, God took a step forward and in these verses said, okay, but here's still a means, still a way that you and I can have fellowship together, that we can have relationship together. Together. And this should, re- this should be a reminder for us of God's desire to have relationship with us. And a reminder of how He has made a way for us to set aside our fears. There was nothing rational separating them. It was fear. And times fear holds us back from our own right relationship with God. And God has made a way for us to set aside our fears and to worship and have fellowship with Him. And the Bible tells us that the way that God does this is by faith and through the cross or literally the altar of Jesus Christ who became that sacrifice for us. The means, the way. And as we step back from God because of sin and because of fear and because of the judgment attached to all those things, God took a huge step towards us coming into this creation, sending His Son Jesus Christ and and prepared an altar and prepared a sacrifice so that we might have fellowship with Him. And by God's perfect love for us as demonstrated by what Jesus did, the fears we have are cast out. Making it possible for us to, 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 to boldly enter, the Bible says, into his presence. And this is affirmed in Hebrews chapter 10, just one of many places, in verses 19 to 23, which says this, "Therefore brethren, having boldness to enter the most holy place, to the presence of God, by the blood of Jesus, having this boldness by a new and living way which he consecrated for us. Through the veil, that is, His flesh. And having a high priest, literally a mediator still. The mediator is no longer a man. The mediator is God Himself, the Son of God. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. In full assurance of faith. You know what that means without fear. In full assurance of faith. Not full assurance because of who you are or because of who you are not, because of what you do or what you don't do, but because of full assurance of what Christ has done. Full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us therefore hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For He who is faithful has promised is promised. And and, and this message isn't just the unbeliever. Paul writes and he says, brethren, and this is a good reminder for us because we fail. We still fall short. We still go astray, all of us, like sheep, at times doing things our way, being tempted by the world, by the lust of our flesh, the desires that come forth. and, And we turn our backs on a loving God and we sin against Him and God takes a step to us and he says, remember the cross, remember the altar. Turn back to me. I want to have fellowship with you. He casts out our fear, the Bible says, by his perfect, by his perfect love. And so the proper place to meet God was here in the, in, in the context that God was setting forth for the Hebrew people and is still today at the altar. The proper place to meet God is at the altar. But in regards to the altar of sacrifice here for the Hebrew people, we need to remember that you need to keep these things in mind. It's so cool that it all connects together. Back to even what God's even put forth in the, in the, in the Ten Commandments, put forth in these first 17 verses. Because we need to remember that, that since an invisible God, right? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Since an invisible God had been the one to speak directly to them, they had been commanded in one of the very first commands to not make any carved image, any representation of Him in order to aid them in worship. It would not be a, 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 a means of worshiping in spirit and in truth. And this command is reflected in verses 20 through to 26 here in the command, even with the altar, where God gave these specific regulations concerning the altar and said that it was simply to be made up out of earth or stones. And and um, for you and I, the the, the, the we lo- there's a lot lost here because we weren't the he- in, 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 there's a lot lost in just in the simple fact that we live in in such a time where people don't worship on altars. But if you look back historically, and if you've been to, to to any of these ancient cities, I've had the, the opportunity to do some so in some of the travels that I've gone through, some of these altars that these pagan people erected were were magnificent one of them is even one of the seventh wonder of the world Dian- the altar uh, offered up to constructed to diana one of the greek goddesses elaborate beautiful things and God said, "Hey, if you're going to this is what God literally said to his Hebrew people who had been in Egyptian bondage with all of these gods there, with all of these altars and this elaborate worship being offered up to them with with, you know, marble pillars and and gold and hewn stone and 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 carved images of these gods, God said, "Hey, if you're going to if you're going to worship me, just take some dirt and mound it up." If you're going to come to an altar, and 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 have fellowship with me. Just take some dirt and mount it up or gather some rocks together that you might find laying around the road and, and stack them. Think about that in that context. That's that's an amazing, eye opening statement. And if the altar was to be made from these stones, it was not be they were not to be cut in any way, and it was in order to avoid the temptation to carve images in the stones in the altar. And, 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 but God also said in verse 24, here's a cool thing about it, God was really saying in verse 24 that the altar could be located wherever He caused His name to be honored. And we see this over and over and over again as the children of Israel travel through the wilderness and they come into the promised land and they fight battle after battle where God's name is being honored because of the work that God does. God says to them, make a memorial, stack some stones. Because it was not only a place to give God honor and worship and have fellowship with Him and and recognize Him, but it was also a a, a way for future generations to to, to ask and go, what happened here? Where they could testify of the goodness of God and the, the relationship that they had with God. And so God was saying that you can create these altars anywhere where I caused my name to be honored. And then we read lastly that he even prevented the construction of any steps that might reveal the nakedness of the priest. And we're going to talk about that now because we'll talk about it later when we come into the establishment of the priesthood. But what I want to point out now is is that if we fast forward 40 years from this place, from this time, from this event, you come come to um, Moses standing before the next generation of the Hebrew people as they prepare to enter the promised land. And I point to that, to, that, to, that, to that instance, to that occurrence, because in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15, Moses is speaking and he reminds this new generation of Hebrew people that, that their ancestors had seen the manifestations of God's glory and power here at Mount Sinai and even heard their word, His words, which is key. But Moses said this, they saw no form, quote, they saw no form of any kind when the Lord spoke. And there's significance to this in relationship to the altar, meaning God did not reveal himself in a physical form so that his people would not be tempted to turn a living God into another dead idol. In light of all this, this is how it all culminates for us. In light of this, I want to point out that God's people were called to be a people of his word. That was the important thing. That was what the, what, what the attention was to be given to. They were called to be a people of His Word and to live by faith. Not in accordance to what they could see, but because of what they heard. And, and, and their success as a nation, as an individual, as, as God's people, it depended upon Hearing God's Word. That's the focus of this over and over and over again. And that has to be established as we continue on because that's what God continued to do. He continued to speak to them. And so and so their success depended upon not only hearing God's Word, but then the faith aspect of it played into believing God's word and ultimately from believing God's word into the obedience of God's word, obeying God's word. This was the means for the relationship. This was the link in the chain that connected them to God. His word. Which was different than any other pagan nation around them who had built their false religions on what they could see. Idols made by men's hands. And guys, I'm here to tell you, that sets our religion, our relationship with God, apart from any other one, is still in the world today. Foundationally. But Israel was to make no carved image. And in doing so, they were called to worship an invisible God who had spoken His Word to them. And in regards to this unique call, there's a Jewish rabbi who lived in the early 1900s named Abraham Joshua Heschel. He's a Jewish author, and and he was also, well, anyway, he's a Jewish author, and he summarized Israel's theology of the Scriptures, of God's Word, and he said in his book entitled The Insecurity of Freedom, he said this, to believe, to believe, we need God, a soul, and the Word. That's it. To believe, we need God, a soul, and the Word. And, and, and the, the point is, the way that we worship God today is no different, no different than then, in that even though we can't see God, He has made Himself and His will known to us. How? How? By His Word. And God calls us to the place of worship today. He calls us to the place of fellowship today today by calling us to put our faith in His Word. But for us, in regards to the Word that God has given us, it's so much more considering the very Word of God, the Bible tells us. The very Word of God has been manifested to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, who, according to the Gospel of John, is the Word. And in John chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John continues in verse 14 and even declares it more and says, and the Word was manifested to us, became flesh, and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Guys, the point is, God has also given to us everything we need to believe. Has given to us everything that we need to believe. But like the Hebrew people, our success is a matter of faith. Faith to believe and faith to obey the Word of God. And so with this foundation, not only for the Hebrew people, but for us today, we continue on into the next... Few chapters where, where we're beginning in chapter 21, we, we continue on and, and go on to chapter 23 because in these chapters they account various precepts or guidelines, if you will. And that, that word guideline is a little bit weak because it's, the guidelines today are, 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 are kind of like we, we don't take them as absolutes, <laughs> you know, it's just a guideline. And you, you might go a little left, good light, as long as you're there. But that's, that's not, it's more, of a, it's more of an absolute. It's, 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 it's truly a precept of God. And I want to point out that as we go through these, these next verses, they can really be, be broken down into five sections and, 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 or into five different categories. And as we look at these categories, if you're, if you're taking notes this morning, we need to do so with the understanding, first of all, this understanding. Our God, who has spoken to us, who has given us His Word, and calls us to faith, to believe, and to trust, and to obey Him, so that we might have fellowship with Him at the altar of Jesus Christ. We need to remember that our God is a God of justice. This is one of the things that is being communicated to the Hebrew people here. And it's something that God wants us to, 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 to solidly affirm in our own hearts today. That God is a God of justice. There are many places in Scripture that affirm this, too, that says basically the very same thing as Proverbs 33, verse 5, and Isaiah 30, verse 18, where it says this, Our God is a God who loves righteousness and justice. He loves it. And we must understand that justice is this. And and I, and I really felt the need to accurately define this because our world today has so corrupted and so perverted that word justice. And you look into our, into our, our, our government and into the, the courts today and, and just in, in the world in general and you go, that's justice? And there's this awful perversion of it. And so we even have a dumbed down or, or, or warped or, or perverted, we can even have a warped or perverted sense of what true justice means because of this world that we live in, even though we have the Word of God and the example of God to give us clarity in that. And so I desire for us to have clarity in that, this... this with this this morning in regards to justice and our God being a God who who loves justice, who is a God of justice. And we must understand that justice is this. It's the practical outworking of the righteousness of God in humanity or in human history. Justice is the practical outworking of the righteousness of God in our human history. Past, present, and Future. But even though our God is a God of justice, we cannot forget as we look through these precepts of God regarding and surrounding the Ten Commandments, guys, our God's also long-suffering. He's merciful. And He's a patient God. And none of those things contradict the fact that He's also just. And we cannot forget these things because... Our God ultimately is a God who calls people to turn away from their sin and back to that path of righteousness. So even though there, are, there may be a great deal of injustice in our world today, we should not forget that there is coming a time when God will judge the world in righteousness and His judgments will be just. If you don't believe me, go read the book of Revelation. Now, in the in the first eleven verses of chapter twenty-one, I'm going to read these as kind of we kick it all off. But um, um, God gives really these first set of regulations or these first set of guidelines or precepts, and they are in regards to servants. And we know that was a part of the of the Hebrew culture. And in verse one, it says, "Now there are um, verse one of chapter twenty-one. Now these are the judgments which you shall." set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and the children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges, and he shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. In another passage of Scripture, we know that the piercing piercing of the ear was actually, there was a gold ring that was placed in it at that time. And verse 7, if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to him, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her as a foreign people, since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the customs of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, her and her marriage rights. If he does not do these things, uh, do not do these 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 three for her, then she'll go. She shall go out free without paying, paying money. Now, um, let's see. When we when we consider this. Uh, in regards to the Hebrew servanthood and the structure that's set it up here, one of the one of the things we know is is that a way that you could get out of debt, according to the Hebrew culture, is is you could sell yourself to somebody to pay off the debt that you owed, and that would be the normal context for some of the things that we're reading about here, where they would where a person would sell themselves into servanthood if they could not meet their financial obligations, and and um, uh, if if you could not sell yourself or your son, you could even at this point read this. You could sell your daughter in, in exchange for that thing. But 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 the 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 principle or the guideline, one of the first principles or guideline that God puts forth here in place, is found in verse two, where He says that the debtor could not be made to serve more than six years. And all the other basic principles regarding. Their release at the end of the six-year period of time are detailed in these verses. They basically commanded this: that that a person could go free, in, in exactly the same condition in which they came into servanthood. The way that they came in was the way that they could they could go out. And in other words, if he was married when he became a servant, his wife would go out with him. But if he married a, 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 one of his master's maid servants during those six years, he did so realizing with the understanding that when he went free, that his wife and any children that he had with them would stay with that master. Any kind of increase that he would receive while under uh, uh, the, the house of his master, that would remain behind if he chose to leave. And, and, and um, but if, if, he, if he did so, um, um, uh, but, if, but the other option was is that he could willingly choose to remain at the end of that six-year period of time um, rather than surrendering his wife or his children or anything else that he had gained while living under his master's roof. But if he did so, it meant that he willingly made a decision to serve his master for the rest of his life. He gave up that right to, to, to be free, to be his own man, to be his own person. He, he, he said, here in my master's house is better than on my own. Or on my master's house, in my master's house, I've been blessed, I've been richly blessed. And so this is where I choose to say. And of course, this decision was sealed, as it says in verse 6, by the piercing of the, of the servants here. And then they would be brought before the judges, which would make a recording of this, and so then it would be. And it's interesting, when we look to the New Testament, um, as so many of these things are are, are examples that are, are bore forth in the New Testament in regards to even our relationship with Jesus Christ, when we look to the New Testament, we see that many of the apostles, especially the Apostle Paul, would often write and use the same terminology was referred to as a bondservant or as a doulos Uh, in regards to their relationship with Jesus. And it it paints this really, really cool picture for us. Um, And and as the apostles did this, as, as Paul did this, they were sending a clear message to those in the church and to those around them that told of how they had been so blessed by Jesus that they had willingly chosen to become His servant for the rest of their life. And that's an awesome picture for us. And that's a thing for us, too, as we've committed our lives to the, to the lordship of Jesus Christ and have had this relationship to him where we said we've come into our father's house and we've received so much here, so much blessing that we choose not to leave because this is the place where we choose to reside. This is where God's love has flowed out on us. Now, as we continue through, we see that the first section of guidelines dealing with servanthood and and both in the, the instance of males and females, but if you jump ahead to verse 12 and um, you continue on, and it's a large section that I'm not going to read through it all, but if you continue on um, into chapter 22 through to verse 20, um, where it speaks about sacrifices to any God except of the Lord, only he shall be utterly destroyed. Um, what we see in this next section or this, of, the, of these five sections that we're going to read about that there's a second set of precepts that had to do with various violations of the law. In other words, what to do when someone broke God's command. If this was a, 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 not only an, an individual thing, but uh, the God's law was also for the nation of Israel to guide them and to, to govern over them, then, then in, when there was a breaking of the law, a violation of it, there had to be um, judgments attached. Penalties attached, and and the penalties mentioned here there are there are twenty three of them. You can go ahead and read on your own, but there are twenty three of them that are specifically mentioned, and they range anywhere from a, a small fine, um, all the way up to to death, depending on the on the on upon the violation. And then even at times, two times in this passage, the word utter destruction is used. Now I. I I'm sure that has spiritual implications that I'm not just going to go into this morning, but what you have to see is is that there was even something greater than death attached to the violation of God's law. Utter destruction. Penalties. But in light of all these different penalties, the important thing, what I want to point out for us, the thing that I want us to catch, is that the, the thing for us to take note of is that the basic principle or philosophy of the Mosaic Law in regards to to punishment is something that is referred to at the lex talionis. Has anybody heard of that? It's the lex talionis. It, 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 it's simply um, a law of retaliation in where a punishment resembles the offense committed in like kind or like degree, Okay? in where a punishment resembles the offense committed in like kind or like degree. That was the philosophy behind the punishments attached to the violations of God's law. And um, and this philosophy of the law is really stated forth in verses 24 and 25 in chapter 21. If you want to look there, I'm going to read it to you. In verses 24 and 25, you've heard this where it says, um, eye for eye tooth for tooth hand for hand foot for foot burn for bone, burn wound for wound and stripe for stripe punishment in a like kind in other words god was telling his people that the punishment always must always fit the crime does that happen today not at all not at all but yet that was god's means that was god's way that was that was the foundation for these things and and and, and it is important to understand though that this This eye-for-eye principle was not intended to be a guideline for personal ethics, but a principle for national justice. That's what's being spoken of here. And when Jesus spoke about this, because you guys know that Jesus did, right? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus spoke about this in verses 38 through 42. Many people think that he was rejecting this principle, and he wasn't. Not in any means Was, was, was Jesus rejecting this principle in regards to national justice. He simply rejected the misuse of it. And it was on this level. Jesus was rejecting the misuse of this in regards to personal vengeance or in regards to a justification for retaliation, personal retaliation. Remember, Jesus said this. He said, you have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, this is hard, guys. This is where it gets real for us. I tell you to not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And so when we consider justice and the violations of the law and the, 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 the punishments that are attached to it, these 23 penalties listed here in Exodus in these verses for us for the, for the violations of the law, we should be careful in our own lives. We should be careful to remember that God has called us, first and foremost, guys, to be a merciful people. He's called us to be a merciful people. And this is expounded even furthermore in James chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, where it says, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is who God's called us to be. Not people that are often filling the churches uh, and down in in years past, but even today, where where they stand at the door with their rulers of legalism and casting judgment upon people and seeing what violations of the law that they have made so they can ex- execute judgment and, and penalties through, through the lens of self-righteousness and the pharisaical attitude that can creep into our own hearts when we come before the law and, and, and not rightly judge ourselves and not rightly judge others. When God, said, when God says to us clearly, mercy. Mercy is better than judgment. Now, in addition to the guidelines for the violations of the law, God gave guidelines, in, in additional guidelines in verses 21 through 31 of chapter 22. And um, uh, so if you look there in, in, in chapter 22, uh, beginning in verse 21, um, God said this. He said, You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, why? For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow of a fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way, and they cry to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you have ever if you, if you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only, his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious." I love that even in the midst of these rules and regulations and the law and all the precepts that God points out this fact in regards to just compassion and grace. So many people hear about the law of God and the Old Testament, the Old Testament God and they, and they make these, these, un, these unjust character judgments towards God. And yet, in the midst of even of these things, God says, even in the midst of these things, be gracious, be merciful, be compassionate. As a matter of fact, if you're not, you're going to take it up with me. Because why? He says, I'm a gracious God, and I want you to be that way too. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people, nor shall you delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and, 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 and your juices the firstborn of your sons you shall give to Me. Likewise, you shall do with your, your oxen and your sheep. It shall be when it is with its mother seven days, and on the eighth day you shall give it to Me, God says. And you shall, lastly, verse 31, this is so key, you shall be holy men to Me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. So in addition to the, the guidelines for the violations of the law that God gave, He in these verses gave, gave guidelines... That really prohibited abuse. God prohibited abuse. And specifically, in these verses, addressed six different ways in which this applied. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna quickly go through them. The first was in regard to the abuses of foreigners who came into their land, the stranger. And, and, and the way that they were called to treat them, according to verse 21, was in consideration and remembrance how, how they were once foreigners. Also, strangers also in a strange land, in Egypt. And to remember, God was saying, remember how you were treated? Remember what you were like, what you were going through? And, and it's this call to have compassion on those who may come to them, that they could be a place of refuge for others, to treat them in, in that, in, 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 with this remembrance of, how did you like it when you were treated that way? And, and I love this aspect of it, guys, because often we go forward in our walk and our relationship with God, and we forget where God's brought us from. We forget some of the hard things that we've gone through, some of the things that God has set us free from. And in doing so, we don't treat others who are then coming in with compassion, with understanding, with love. And So God calls him to this place and he calls it to by way of remembrance and going remember and then the second set of guidelines for abuse had to do with the widow and the orphan and in verses 23 through 24 God said that if he should hear their cry his anger would be aroused and he would bring a sword against the nation making their wives widow and their widows and their 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 children fatherless likewise the poor are mentioned then in verses 25 through 27 and the guidelines here that God put forth can be terribly convicting in the world that we live in today. And there were guidelines that protected the poor. Ultimately, the, the key here or the underlying message here was protecting the poor from being taken advantage of. And God commanded the Hebrew people to really help those who were in need. Those who could not help themselves, to help them. And then in verse 28, God also instructed His people to not mistreat those who were in authority over them or to speak a reviling or cursing word against them, which really, guys, God is again dealing with an issue of the heart that is then manifested by the tongue over and over again. And if we're speaking ill of our authorities or people in charge over us, then it's an issue of our heart. We're reviling them in our heart, and God says, don't do that. There's a guideline here. There's a principle here. There's a precept to put here. A command from God to not do these things. And in regards to to God also being then in the ultimate position of the authority, He also spoke guidelines in verses 29 through 30. And in doing so, we see that all these guidelines had to do with withholding an offering that was due to God. What was His? And by this, God was simply clearly saying to us that honoring Him was reflected. And, 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 and how we honored Him, whether it was an honoring or a dishonoring of Him, as the authority, as God, was simply reflected in the offerings that the people would bring. Are you bringing your leftovers before the Lord? I heard that spoke once in a Bible study, and I never forgot it because um, I like food. You know, it's like when you invite the Lord over, do you get the leftovers out? and make, make a goulash or, or, go, or put out there? Or, or when you, is, it, is it something that should be taken from your freezer and de-thawed like a prime rib? A Caesar salad. Something delicious and that you've put labor and time into. Is this, is, are you giving the Lord your best kind of a thing? Or are you serving Him leftovers? And in our lives, this is what God's speaking about and respecting Him and honoring His authority. Are we giving what is due to Him? The first, the best, and God said that if the people were to bring, if they were to withhold what they what rightly belong to God, what they rightly what rightly belong to God, then it would be considered in the same category an issue of abuse of the authority of God in their lives. But the last guideline. Against abuse had to do with them themselves, with they themselves, they as holy men, those who had been set apart from by God from the world. And even though there's only one specific application given here in verse 31 in regards to eating, we might say roadkill <laughs> should be given to the dogs. Um, fortunately, that doesn't apply to us in the same way today. A couple years ago, I got this awesome elk from the from the Department of Transportation roadkill. It was mostly alive when I got there, um, so it wasn't rotted. But, but what I want you to see is, is even though there's one specific application given here, we know that, that throughout all of the law, there are many things here that, that the, the Hebrew people were to do that was a reflection of, of them being a holy people. And what that simply means is a people who were set apart by God. And, and this ranged from so many things, from from not only the offerings that they would bring, um, um, but, but what they wore, who they married, what they ate, what they didn't eat, how they worshipped. Every aspect of their life was governed by God, and it was to be a testimony to those around them that they were a holy people, a chosen people set apart by God. In other words, the way they lived and, and, and spoke and, and, and everything about them Reflected that there's something different, and 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 they could, God said that in regards to this abusive, you could even be uh, sinning against yourself in a sense, if when we're not living as holy people, separated and set apart by God, when we're defiling our th- ourselves with the things of this world, things that should be given to the dogs, that we take in and go, oh, this is so awesome, this is so great, but it's completely different in, than the way that God has called us to live. Now, the last two precepts, I'm going to work through these pretty quickly. The last two precepts, set of precepts, the, the fourth and fifth, they're, they're, they begin in chapter 23. And, and there, there's really two sections, not all the way through chapter 23, but up to verse 19. And, and God gives guidelines, first of all, for justice in verses 1 through 12. And it's interesting when God speaks about justice in these verses that He's really speaking about Israel's obligation to treat all men justly and with compassion. That's the idea behind it. Are you, are you treating people justly? And, and, and is it with this heart of compassion for them? And you can read through that in the, in the first 12 verses. And then lastly, this is where I want to end And August, if you want to come up and and prepare, we're going to just wrap up with this. But um, lastly, in verse 13, is is this last set of guidelines in verse 23, um, or chapter 23, verse 13, starting there. And, And it says this, it says, And in all that I have said to you, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, and I, as I commanded you, at the time of the appointed month of Abib, for in it you shall, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruit of your labors, which you have sown in the field. The feast of ingathering at the end of the year. When you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from your field three times in the year, all your males shall appear before God. Again, this idea of fellowship of of relationship, but I want you to see that it's right now God's bringing it to this 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 um is he's bringing it in through the the means of celebration. And and I I find that very, very intriguing. He says, You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until the morning. The first of the fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God, and you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. The point, guys, is is these sacrifices or these, 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 these commanded feasts that were to happen three times a year by all the males as they'd come together, this, is the, this was more than just a time to offer up your sacrifice before the Lord, to give God what he was due. It was this opportunity to come to the altar and have fellowship with God in a celebratory manner, remembering what God had done for you. And God gave specific guidelines here ultimately for the worship of Him. And in doing so, He instituted these three annual feasts. The unleavened bread, which, which included also the Feast of Passover, which had already been established by God. The Feast of the Harvest, what would be later become known to us as, as Pentecost which has a real special meaning to us as believers today. And lastly, the Feast of Ingathering, which was at the end of the year, and the harvest was brought in, and it was this, again, this joyous time of the provision and the recognition of God for the provision that He had brought forth. And in these guidelines, we see that the sacrifices offered at these feasts were also strictly regu- regulated by the law. But did you know that throughout the whole law, by the time we get down to the end of it, that there's really seven Annual feasts that were mandated by God that the Hebrew people every year had to keep. That was that God's put all kinds of guidelines forth. And, and 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 the basis of these all, guys, was fellowship with God, communion with God in a celebratory way. And and when I think about that, I go, man, that's important for us to consider. As the Hebrew people being a chosen people, set apart, different than anyone else, think about it, there's 12 months in the year, at least seven of those months, seven times throughout the year, not including, we know that the Hebrew people were big on celebrating in regards to, you know, marriages and and all kinds of things. They're they're known to be a, a joyous celebratory people instituted by God. But the challenge for us this morning, something we were talking about our men's Bible study on Thursday, and I just bring before you too, is, 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 is that how Christians, is that how we are, as Christians today, are known to be? As a celebratory people, as a partying people. Who come to God regularly to have fellowship with Him and are excited to, to proclaim the blessings that we've received from God, to declare the goodness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, that we have fellowship with the Creator. And from my perspective, it seems like we do a very miserable job of that in comparison to what God even instituted in His law. Guys, we should have smiles from ear to ear every day of our life when we stay focused on the relationship that we have through God and the words that He's spoken to us, and the promises that He gives, and the provision that He's provided, and the protection that He gives, and the hope of eternal life that He's given us, the salvation that we've received through His Son, Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, the fact that we become new crea- creations, new creatures, those who have been given a heart of flesh and have had our heart of stones been taken away. All these wonderful, great, and awesome things. But even in that, guys, I'm guilty of it. The two times when the church really does come together throughout the year to celebrate, I'm kind of a bah humbug about it because of what the world has turned it into. Easter and Christmas. But may we stop being people who go around with sour looks on our faces. May we be people who make opportunity, who take opportunity to proclaim the goodness of God, not only corporately, but in our lives everywhere. God commanded it to His people. And if He's commanded it in the law and set forth the guidelines for it seven times over throughout a year, I think that we have even more reason and more accountability and more responsibility to do the very same thing in our lives today. Father, thank You, God, for this remembrance of who You are and what You've done for us and of your goodness and your kindness and your faithfulness and your promises and your provision and your protection. And God, may that fill our hearts today with joy and gladness as we go from here, Lord, looking to celebrate. Maybe even today we start, Lord, in a new way and grabbing somebody with us to go out to lunch and, and, and to be... Um, joyous in the, in, the, in the restaurant, or maybe to have them over and to have a barbecue, or or, or to offer up praises, Lord, as we gather together and, and just in our own homes and sing worship and, and, and praise uh, out loud to you through song, or as we get together, God, and, and, and share stories of the work that you've done in our lives or in the lives of people around us, God, that you may be glorified. And I love that, Lord, because wherever we go, wherever your name is honored, we can build these altars Father, where we have fellowship with You. Lord, we love You and we praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen.